for your reconsideration, is proudly part of the Flickering Myth Podcast Network. Roll up, roll up, and welcome to the For Your Reconsideration Big Time, where you can feast your weary eyes on potentially unimaginable filmic freaks or the unfairly judged yet amazing specimens of yesteryear. Either way, you'll have the time of your life. My name is Rob, and here are my two fellow favourite circus masters, Simon and James. Is this a pirate circus? Oh, it's a pirate <laughs> circus. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting harder and harder to hold on to these voices, gents. <laughs> what, 44 episodes in, yeah, you truly lost it last week with a song. I'm still impre- <laughs> I'm so impressed you're still doing an original thing every each and every week. This is great. Yes. Uh, we sit down every week to record at 8 o'clock. I start writing the intro at 7.50. Fellas, <laughs> how, how are you? I'm all right, mate. Good, yeah. I'm good. How are you doing? Very, very, very good. Thank you, man. Very, very good. Um, what have you been watching this week? Oh, so this week I have watched The Five Bloods on Netflix, which is Ooh. the new film from Spike Lee about a group of Vietnam veterans who return to recover the remains of their squad leader, as well as some buried treasure. I liked it a lot. And with the cinemas being closed at the moment due to the bin fire that is the world, uh, it's so great <laughs> to have a new film of this quality available to watch at home. Yeah, it's totally. got adventure, tension, social relevance, and an amazing performance from FYR favourite Delroy Lindo. Yeah. Uh, yeah big recommend you. They're oh, talking about like an Oscar that. for him. Talking about an Oscar. Are they? Delroy, yeah, Ooh. everyone's. He's very good in it, isn't he? Oh. Yeah. We're not driving I, into I, mountains I, anymore, Delroy. Yeah. I, I. Well, yeah. Yeah. He's getting actual. I think he's got more screen time than anyone in this film. He's. He's good. Um, oh, awesome. Yeah, I watched that as well. Actually. Yeah. Did you like it's, it? It's really good. I. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought it was great. Like I. I thought. Um, Spike Lee's like usual flair and his like unorthodox style is like. You know, within his shooting and editing, uh, really in abundance with this one. Um, by doing so, he's just crafted such a wealth of substance within a film. Yeah, that is just—it's just filled to the brim with pain and guilt and injustice, and you know more so than his last film, which did that as well. Um, Black Klansman. Yeah, I loved it. I, I thought it was really good. But you know, it for the most part, it's like it worked. All that sort of stuff works. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it doesn't. It gets a bit too much. Sometimes it's like, all right, maybe dial that back a, a wee bit, or because uh, it's quite a long film, isn't it? It's like two it, and a half hours. Yeah, it does run quite long. I mean, it's like seventeen movies in one, isn't it? It's like yeah, it's, oh, it's a hangout movie. There's adventure. There's war movies. There's yeah. Oh, it's he's chucking everything in there. There's the still photography in there. There's sixteen mil footage in there. There's archive footage in there. Aspect ratios. Uh, aspect ratio changes. Um, so he, he he goes the full shebang on it. The, the kitchen sink um, goes well and truly in there. Yeah. <laughs> but he's certainly found his mojo again, hasn't he? Yeah, without a doubt, yeah. He's made two cracking films in the last few years. Um, and yeah, it's a really great watch. It's really, really good. Cool. Really enjoy very, it. Very, very cool. That's Is that what you watched as well, Sai? Yeah, I just quickly. I also watched Crawl, which James, I think James oh, mentioned yeah. it a few episodes ago, oh. and it's fucking brilliant. Yes, I really yeah, enjoyed it. Is it good? Oh. <laughs> where where can you catch that at the moment? It's on Sky Cinema. Is it on Sky Cinema? Yeah. So yeah, on, nice. on the old Now TV, Rob. It's 
you know, you like a creature feature. It's oh, yeah. Very Again, good. it's in that bracket of I'm almost too scared to watch it because I know I'm going to like it. Yeah. It's very, very good, yeah. Here's something to sweet, uh, sweeten her for you as well, Rob. It's 88 minutes long. Ooh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a short one. Yeah. Oh, my word. That's just long enough to put the kids to bed and listen to them cry about it for, well, just under an hour and a half. So, fantastic. Yeah, I, I'm really glad I watched that. Um, it's it's very good. It's it's Yeah, it's really good. Awesome. Deep Blue Sea gets a lot of love on this podcast, but that has gone up to number two on my um, water-bound animal, scary animal movies. <laughs> Is that does that mean it's above Rogue? Uh, yes, yeah, I think so. Cool, cool. What have you been watching, Rob? Well, I watched Harry Potter's three and four this week. Oh, yes, continuation. Can't wait. Every week, I'm I'm looking forward to this update every week. Well, and uh, don't worry, you'll get it because my kids are already arguing about when we can watch <laughs> five and six. Um, yeah, you guys said that three was going to be amazing. Three is uh, Prisoner of Azkaban, <laughs> as, uh, uh, as no one says. Um, so uh, and um, yeah, flipping out. That was amazing. That film. Yeah, absolutely. But every frame of it's beautiful, and it was that thing where you're in the hands of an absolute master. Yeah. Throughout it, doesn't matter what the film's about. You're in the hands of a master. You've done an unofficial Quaran double bill this week. Yeah, you have. Well, I didn't even. I didn't really want to. Yeah, I didn't really want to uh, <laughs> so much horns about it. But yeah, uh, <laughs> it's been a Quaran double bill this week. Um, four was good. The death of Cedric Diggory was obviously pretty painful. Sorry if you've not seen it. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, <laughs> apologies. Um, but you know, everyone's dead surprised. Like, oh no, he's dead. It's devastating. Well, you keep putting these kids in life or death situations <laughs> all the time. You know, one of them's not going to make it at some point. It just so happens to be the handsome fella. It's a wonder they got through four movies without anyone dying. <laughs> oh, no, I know. I know. Well, there. <laughs> School are like, yeah, we did we, all right. <laughs> Only one of them. Yeah. Four years, not bad. <laughs> they must put those stat, have to put those stats to the investors. You know, one death in four years is very good for Hogwarts. <laughs> very, very good. Uh, but on, you know, on top of that, though, I mean, like Ron's behaviour is a disgrace. I mean, he said piss in this one on the fourth. <laughs> That's a disgrace. You know, trying to explain to my five-year-old what that is. Yeah. You know, why has he said that? About... It's supposed to be a jolly kids film. Well, no, there's kids dying in it. So... Don't they move up from PG to twelve as they go on as well? They do, and that probably belies more a problem in my parenting rather than. (laughs) 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 But that being said, you know, um, right? Just just to add, um, I uh, I think it was two or three weeks ago I started talking about a film called Dark Encounter, Mm. and it's um, it's sort of an alien abduction movie set in America, but it's homegrown for us. Um, It was. Uh, financed and filmed over here in the UK. Uh, and I finished it this week, actually. Um, no, For no reason, there was no reason for the three-week gap. Um, you know, <laughs> just for your information, I, I started... Um, what's that one called? Not Abominable? Annihilation. Annihilation, yeah, thanks, man. Annihilation. I started Annihilation um, 18 months ago, and I've still not finished it. So the <laughs> fact that I wanted to go back to watch The End of Dark Encounter is pretty impressive. Anyway. I mean, it's just how the uh, filmmakers intended, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they always they always have a three-week intermission, don't they, yeah. <laughs> these days? Um, and uh, But no, uh, going back, I mean, I was... Um, 
I was floored by what I went back to. Um, so it gave me so much more than I was expecting. Really, really was. Uh, it went above and beyond um, my expectations, not just of a movie that you grab on Prime uh, or, you know, on whatever streaming service. Yeah. Many streaming services are about, available. But, you know, at night you sit down and you scroll through and you pick something, don't you? you know? Absolutely. And this exceeded all those expectations by an absolute mile. But the third act was absolutely killer. So I'm not going to say any more about it. You've got to go, you've got to get your prime going on. You've got to go see it. This is Yorkshire posing as I think it's Pennsylvania, I believe, and um, you never question that once ever. Oh, brilliant! Uh, no, I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to try and catch it this week. Yeah, I definitely need to watch that. Yeah, it's very very good. Judging off of um, Twitter, it seems like they all had a really good time making it. Um, awesome. And uh, yeah. I look forward to what these people do next, definitely. Wonderbar. Makes you proud, doesn't it? People making movies and having a good time in Yorkshire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Next time you guys make, you know, I'm looking at you, Carl Strathy. Next time you make a movie in Yorkshire, you know. That was me waving a Bud Light already brand appropriate. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So this week, we decided to do something different, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Would anyone care to elaborate? No. <laughs> <laughs> so every week we decide to have a little chit chat about something um, about movies um, that was provoked by the movie in question, and uh, we thought this week we would put our well put the question to you guys. And um, one of our uh, most loyal listeners, listeners, uh, Jamie Russell, was kind enough to suggest tonight's question to us. And James, I think you know what that question is. Yes. So uh, Jamie um, made the comment that he felt that tonight's film, Children of Men, had a pretty stonking opening scene. So he's put forward to us, what do we think are the best opening scenes in films? Discuss. It's really hard. <laughs> it's really, really hard. Usually with these questions, when we get them, I like to just go uh, just off the top of my head. So the the ones what come in straight away, mm. just like quick, like honourable mentions, um, Touch of Evil is like the classic one, isn't it? Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Film. Yeah. Another quick one. Everyone knows it. Dark Knight opening's brilliant. So. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. But honestly, this is genuinely the first one what came to my mind. I love this movie. J.J. Abrams' Star Trek film. Ah. It starts out with um, Chris Hemsworth playing George Kirk, who's um, James Kirk's dad, Captain Kirk's dad, um, and his wife's pregnant, about to give birth. And it's just this amazing opening. Yeah, there's just this... Straight away, there's just this massive dust-up in space. And Chris Hemsworth's only in it for like five, ten minutes. And he, he just, he's only a captain, isn't he, for, for those five, ten minutes. And everything's going mad. And he's just this heroic finale for George Kirk as he plows his ship into the bad guys. Um, yeah. And it's like, this is the opening five minutes. I'm like, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, and then it's amazing. It, it cuts to the titles and the music comes up and it's like, and the Star Trek oh, logo comes so out. I was just good. like, "Whoa, I am into this film." Yeah, um, yeah. And I, 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 I watched it not long ago actually because I, I was. Browsing oh, it's a good through, movie, isn't it, man? Browsing through on our TV. I'm not a massive Star Trek fan, and if truth be told, I was like, yeah. you know, I know everyone knows Star Trek. It's one of the most, you know, it's the biggest sort of sci-fi franchise going next to Star Wars, so everyone knows what it is. But I was never really that that into it. But yeah, that film just, oh, it's amazing. It's brilliant. 
love that movie. And that opening sequence just got me straight in. It grabbed me straight from the off. And that's what, but yeah, that's... Uh, that's such a good shout film. because it was it was not just like a good opening to a film, but it was um, a star-making moment, wasn't it, as well? Like Chris Hemsworth was suddenly box office after that. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, he, was, he was very... I think he'd been in like a couple of things, but that was the first thing that made really made him pop. And then within a, a year or two, he's Thor, isn't he's he? Thor, so, yeah, yeah, he goes supernova. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, that was my one. That was genuinely the first one what popped up in my head. That's quality, lovely quality. Uh, James, yeah, I've got so many. Like it was. This is such a difficult question, and I mean, you could do loads just for Spielberg. Alone, like <laughs> he really, could. Yes. really, really could. Like the opening of Raiders of the Lost Ark is just oh, it is. absolutely iconic. It is. Um, the opening of ET is phenomenal. <laughs> Jurassic Park, um, and before I actually go into uh, one in detail, um, other other notable mentions that I wanted to shout out. Have you guys seen the Joe Carnahan film? No. Oh man, I had yes. ages ago though, but yes. I can't remember it. That has one of the best opening two minutes of a film I've ever it seen. Really it's does. like a kitchen sink version of the foot chase in Point Break, but with more crackheads and more in a <laughs> getting yeah. shot and stabbed with needles of awfulness. Yeah, so I wanted to shout that out because it's just. A, such a visceral, violent opening two minutes of a film where this poor cameraman had to just peg it after Jason Patrick through this ghetto, which is <laughs> it's just it's just incredible. Talk about grabbing you by the short and curlies. <laughs> but but mine, I had to settle on, and because it's my favourite film ever, uh, I had to go with uh, with the main man uh, Stevie Spielberg. Oh, he doesn't mind me calling him Stevie. <laughs> And uh, I had to go with Jaws because the opening of yeah. that film is absolutely incredible. And it just sets up all the building blocks for what will come in the sense that you won't see the creature for the for the majority of the film. Mm, you get yeah. the first sort of pangs of um, John Williams' music as well. And just the lighting yeah. uh, when uh, – is it Chrissy goes out? Let me just double-check that. Yeah, yeah. When Chrissy goes out and uh, for a – for a, it's just before the magic hour, isn't it? So it's like almost yeah. dawn uh, for a swim, and she's just dragged under, and the horrible guttural screams as she's like, she's absolutely oh, helpless. God, Again, it's just terrifying. It haunts me to this day. It's the, the the first noises she makes, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, oh dear, it's absolutely oh, awful. That was that was scary. It was. Nice. It is accurate. But if I, I know, I agree with and you. And the way they got that is just her in a recording studio with just Steven Spielberg just dousing her in bucket with buckets of water next to a microphone. <laughs> I, I, honestly, but I totally, totally, totally agree. And and when you think about like what you just described there, James, you're talking about like formative film theory now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, sort of like forty years later, or however, however, what are we on? Forty-five years later, I think it might actually be the anniversary this uh, this weekend of when it first oh, wow. came out. Forty-five-year cool. anniversary. Yeah, my um, my mom and dad saw it on their first date, and in lockdown oh, wow. they watched it together again for their for the first time. And mum said, "Yeah, I still couldn't watch it." <laughs> you know, so she watched it through her hands, like, "Oh dear, yeah, super stuff." Um, yeah, openings of films because that's the thing, isn't it? You've got to. Um, you got to grab, haven't you? 
you know, yeah, absolutely. In a story, you grab, and the stronger the grab, I mean, like some films like are remembered because of their opening and not because of anything else, really. Um, none of the ones I'm going to talk about are that, but <laughs> I really like um, the opening to Inglorious Bastards, the Florence. Oh, yeah, right. yeah, no, that is good. Yeah, that is really. It's good. another star making turn for Chris Waltz. Um, Goodfellas, <sighs> yeah, extremely, extremely good. Um, Scream. Drew Barrymore. Yes, what an I... incredible opening that is. Yeah. Um, up. Oh, oh don't. Oh, don't. <laughs> the cry all over again. I yeah. cried. So I went to the cinema to watch that film, and I cried Oof. my God heart. God bless you, man. He's all on his own. Oh. <laughs> so, it, so well, the music going on at that point yep. as well. Yeah. All the little touches of... What an amazing sequence that is. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And it's like within three, four minutes of that film, you have been through every emotion yeah. there is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Um, I don't know. I think this part of me would like to go back and think of a visceral one. You know, like first time you felt you saw this and it did something to you. The yeah. opening sequence of Golden Eye on the <sighs> dam, you know, jumping yeah, off yeah. the the dam. Oh, yeah. I think good. like that whole thing going right up to when Tina Turner was you know that was <laughs> yeah it was absolutely brilliant so you know you could take any of them um and i've actually um as you guys were talking i was erasing my own suggestions because you'd mentioned them but um jurassic park is right in that as well yeah. that opening sequence shooter of... shooter, shooter! <laughs> oh dear so good and then uh, you know i was absolutely befuddled when we saw that fella in beige khakis going across the river <laughs> on a pallet. Um, yeah, marvellous. And thank you, fellas, and thank you, Jamie. Yes, thank you, Jamie. Good... Cheers, Jamie. Man. And thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in, mate. Really appreciate it. Hopefully um, we've done that question justice for you, Jamie. And if anyone oh, else would so. like a question answering from the FYR pod, then by all means, hit us up on, yeah. on the Twitter at FYR Film Pod. Couldn't agree more. So... This week's movie, Ooh. part of an unofficial Alfonso Cuaron double bill for myself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> whose pick was it this week? Uh, it was mine this week, and I've I've just realised as well that I'm taking us to um to another view of the future. <laughs> so after my last film and our trip to a utopian San Angeles, we're now heading to a dystopian London in 2027 where 18 years of human infertility has left society on the verge of extinction. When one woman miraculously gets pregnant, a bureaucrat with a selection of questionable footwear <laughs> must transport her to safety. Uh, this is Alfonso Cuaron's 2006 film, Children of Men. I can't really remember when I last had any hope. And I certainly can't remember when anyone else did either. Because really... Since women stopped being able to have babies, what's left to hope for? The world was stunned today by the death of Diego Ricardo, the youngest person on the planet. The youngest person on Earth was 18 years, 4 months, 20 days, 16 hours and 8 minutes old. The ultimate mystery, why are women infertile? Some say it's genetic experiments, pollution. Why do you think we can't make babies anymore? Doesn't matter. It's all over in 50 years. It's too late. Move along! Move along! Hello, Theo. How have you been? 
I'm sorry about the theatrics. Police have been a pain lately. I haven't seen you for nearly 20 years. I need your help. Not for me, a girl. I need to get her to the coast, past security checkpoints. It's hard for me to look at you. He had your eyes. So why did you come to me? I trust you. Show him. Now you know what's at stake. We have to meet the boat. What is this boat? The human project of Center Boat. The human project? It's the greatest minds in the world working for a new society. Your baby is the miracle the whole world has been waiting for. We will find a way to get you to the human project, I promise you. We're almost there, Keith. We're almost there. Sai, why did you pick it? I might I might be wrong on this, but obviously a bit hazy around this time. I'm not sure whether this got released after uni or maybe it's the last year of uni. If if it came out oh six, then we we graduated oh seven, so yeah, final year. Yeah, final year. So like at this time in my life, and I'm sure it was the same for you, chaps, as well. There were two oh. things that were absolutely in, really important to me on Humongous were uh, booze and movies. <laughs> <laughs> my that's that's what my life was based around: booze and movies. Amen, brother. Amen. I, and like usually on a Saturday night, like after a Saturday night out, whether this was in Sheffield at uni or whether I was back home in Manchester. On a Sunday morning, I had this thing where I'd get um, like a nice breakfast, and then I'd go to uh, go to the cinema and watch the first movie that was on. Now, this was one of those movies that I just watched. I had no idea what it was about. I'd not read. It's it's based on a book, and I'd not read the book. I had no idea about that. Didn't know who directed it. Anything about it. Hadn't seen any trailers. Hadn't read anything about it. And I was just absolutely blown away by what I saw on screen. And it just seems that it's one of those films that has kind of faded over time. I know a lot of people who haven't seen it. There are times I'll be having conversations with people and I mention the film and they've never heard of it. And yeah, I was just like, when I found it qualified for the for the pod, I was like, oh, we've got to put this one on. Like, yeah. why, the, why the hell not put this one on? So yeah, um, yeah, that's 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 my why I picked this film. Very cool, very cool. James, what about you, man? What's your? Uh, we always use the word relationship. I would feel, <laughs> I start to feel it's a bit weird as a word to use, but I'm gonna keep it. I'm gonna keep it. What's your relationship with uh, with Children of Men? Uh, yeah, so I went with my housemates at the time to watch Children of Men at the cinema and enjoyed it, and then just kind of forgot about it for some reason like i thought it was a really good movie and then i don't think i revisited it until like maybe five years ago although one of my housemates at the time gave it a lovely review on the way out she went oh there was a lot of swearing in that <laughs> 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 it's a weird takeaway from that movie <laughs> i don't think it's even that accurate to be perfectly honest no i don't i, I barely no. remember any no 
there was a lot more things that were taking my, you know, occupying my mind. Well, to be fair, even if there was the off, uh, the odd uh, F and Jeff, there was, uh, it was quite a stressful situation for everyone involved. <laughs> yeah, like, it wasn't like, you know, unnecessary rude words like Ron Weasley's always kicking out. No, exactly. There was no Ron Weasley nonsense going on. Um, but, but yeah, it was just sort of a film that I saw and thought was, was very good and then kind of just sort of forgot about and then I revisited it last a few years back and went, oh wow, this is actually phenomenal. I think I rewatched it um, after Gravity came out because I was so blown away by the visual spectacle of Gravity. I was like, I don't know if I've slept on Alfonso Cuaron, and I went back and watched it. Like, oh yeah, this is incredible. And then as the years have worn on, it's just become more and more prescient and more and more relevant. Unfortunately, mm, yeah. And yeah, yeah. So I was very happy when Simon brought it to the pod for discussion. Yeah, my relationship with it is a very, very short one, as in one day old. I watched <laughs> it for the first time yesterday. Um, yeah, this is. I'm very excited to to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, you know, I was aware of it. I, obviously, you're aware of the works of great filmmakers, and obviously, yeah. Alfonso Cuarón. Um, having impressed me with Harry Potter three earlier in the week. Oh yeah, made me feel that I had to step in with. Children of Men, but it, it, I knew of it, but it never attracted me to it because I don't. Clive Owen, I'm not sure whether he's my brand of lemonade, if you know what I mean. You know, oh, right. in an okay. acting sense, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know what else. You know, I, I'd like to, and perhaps someone can help me with this. I'd because I'll always give someone a chance, but um, I always feel like I'm watching Clive Owen, and I don't know whether I'm, you know, watching anybody else. You know, well, you know what I mean. I'd like. I'd love to be proved wrong. Yeah, but this is a a weird thing with Clive Owen, wasn't it? Because th- this was very much when he had that real short period of time where he was everywhere and in everything, like a list, wasn't he? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. absolutely, absolutely. He had an incredible run. I was looking at his filmography. So, like from two thousand and four, he was in Closer. Uh, worst date movie ever, by the way. I know that from university. <laughs> uh, that's one thing I learned there. Uh, he was also in a, a big screen version of King, King Arthur, Arthur, where he played oh, King yeah, Arthur, he which was. is a Bruckheimer version directed by Antoine, Antoine Foucault. Yeah, great director. Training day. He did Training Day, didn't he? He did, yeah. yeah. Uh, he was in Sin City as well, as one of the main leads in that. Yeah, 2005, yeah. And then in 2006, he had a great year because he had Inside Man and then Children of Men as well, which yeah, is, yeah. you know, working with some incredible directors. Uh, last thing, guys, and then it just, I think maybe he did a few more movies after that that didn't quite hit as those ones had previously. Yeah, uh, He went to TV, he was in The Nick, which I'd never seen, but all 20 episodes are directed by Steven Soderbergh, so it's probably quite mm. good. Oh, Mr. Soderbergh. <laughs> exactly, shall I take my shirt off? Shall I take a shirt off for you, Mr. Soderbergh? <laughs> Do you want me to take my shirt off for you, Mr. Soderbergh? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the last thing I saw him in was uh, in uh, was this year in series ten of Curb Your Enthusiasm, where he played himself, and he got very upset with Larry for not giving him enough praise for his uh, emotional portrayal in a one man show that he was in. <laughs> <laughs> it was very, very funny. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen Curb for ages. But yeah, it, so this was very much in that period of him where he was uh, lightning in a bottle, wasn't it? For yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say this was the peak because it starts. He's coming down the other side of the mountain after this. There's some good yeah. movies after it. Uh, there's one he did with Julia Roberts called Duplicity, which is about corporate espionage, which is very good. But I don't think it made much money. Mm. 
but yeah, he's. I think this is the high point two thousand and six for him as a uh, as a cine- uh, you know as a big movie leading man. Right, right, yeah. With Inside Man the same year. Yeah. Also with uh, Chuito Ejiofor. I said his name right, I think. This you time. Did, you yes. smashed it, mate. <laughs> <laughs> he's and and in this, I know, I have to say, spoiler alert, he's acting everyone off the screen in this. He's unbelievable in it. He's so good. Yeah, well, he's a great actor. He is. A great he, actor. he really is. But no, sorry to go back to the original thing. Um, no, never seen it before. Last night, um, no expectation, no nothing apart from the fact that people talk about it and they say it's amazing. Um, mm. And that's about it, really. Well, I hope it lived up to that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to it. 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 So it must qualify in one of two ways. James, does it qualify in terms of its budget versus its box office? So in, for the first time in a while, uh, we do have a bit of a box office letdown here. So the budget oh. ranges from 72 to 76 million, depending on wow. where you check. But it only brought in 70 million worldwide, so under its production budget. And once you've taken into account the theatre percentages plus the marketing and advertising costs, you're looking at losses that stretch into the tens of millions, really. So mm. let's say it costs 30 million to market a movie, which is probably being conservative. It's probably a lot more than that, especially something with this budget level. Wow. It could be losing. 40 to 50 million dollars for the studio this so Sheesh, yeah man. yeah it's a bit of a bomb is it universal was it universal it was yeah universal film yeah what came out at the same time was there any i mean what what was it up against it came out around christmas time believe it or not and it's not the most it's so such a festive movie <laughs> yeah it's not the most festive movie and it came out um uh, on these shores first so in the uk and it did okay in the uk it made like 25 million i'm not sure exactly what it was up against but i don't know if the time of year that i think they pushed it back to that time of year so that it would have awards mm, uh because of the it, amount yeah. of technical and cutting edge yeah. filmmaking that's in, in this picture they were hoping it would get some oscar buzz i think right i remember t- i really remember 2006 being the year of the um Ye old magician movies, yes, because the prestige oh, and the yeah, illusionist yeah. came out that year, didn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Both great, I, I like both of them. I, yeah, they're, they're good, really good. Prestige is brilliant, yeah, obviously. and you're allowed to what you're allowed to enjoy both as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the illusionist is great. I, I really like the illusionist and potential for the bond, <laughs> yeah, definitely. But no, I remember at uni, you know, people like which do you like, the illusionist or the prestige? Like. Like both. Is it really mad? <laughs> <laughs> no, they, but this is a good. This is a good point because I'm a miser- I'm a miserable old bastard these days, <laughs> and I'm getting sick of these things on Twitter where it's like, oh, here are four great movies. You have to pick one, and it's like, no, I'll pick them all. Thanks. I yeah, like yeah, them all. Yeah. Fuck off. You're not <laughs> my dad. Yeah. You're not my dad. Twitter. <laughs> Leave me alone. Yeah, just go. Just go. Take your divisiveness and. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I hate- hate that nonsense. I mean, they get the hits, so, I mean, maybe we're doing something wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Right, this week I'm going to say, which do you hate most and put our three faces? (laughs) 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 Oh, dear. Um, So, Rob, we know that it can't be... uh, Well, sorry, I'm so sorry. I mean, you're used to it because it has been that for the last, like, ten episodes. (laughs) I know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know, yeah. I went to the old stock phrase. (laughs) So, bizarrely, I can't go with that. So we must know that critically, it was received quite well. Yeah, 
I think this might be the best reviewed film we've done, actually. Sheesh. Just to chuck out the standard metrics we go on. Rotten Tomatoes is 92%. And I think it's the first certified fresh we've done. Yeah. Ooh. And the audience on that is 85%. Slightly lower on Metacritic, 84 with an audience of 8.5. And by a distance, the highest on Letterboxd um, we've ever done with a 4.2. Wow. Definitely the highest. There is... I'm not going to read any of them because they made me really upset. But if you go to Letterboxd and look at the reviews and sort from lowest first, there are some (laughs) incredible takes on there. There really, really are. Um, Some of them are just baffling. Like, you know, when people go like... This film is boring. I fell asleep after 10 minutes. Lol. One star. Well, you didn't watch it no. then, did you? So you yeah. can't rate it, you <laughs> dick. <laughs> and there's an explosion in the first two minutes. So how the fuck did you fall asleep, you bellend? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I have a love-hate relationship with Letterboxd. Um, mostly love it. The people I follow are great on it. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Like um, me. Well, Pube's the main well, man, yeah. isn't it? Well, yeah, uh, yeah Pube, main man Pube, yeah. <laughs> Overall, like looking at the the critical side of it, um, the ones who get paid for a living to review films, it went down a storm, especially in the states. Uh, it went down really well in the oh, states. Seriously? Loads of That's loads of high scores, loads of five stars. There were a few grumbles about it possibly losing steam the longer it went on. Like it didn't really live up to the uh, the first act. It it, it sort of uh, petered out after the first act. Um, but on the on the whole, the rather somber and realistic image of a dystopian future went down really well. That was like one of the things everyone really mm. really liked about it. Sadly, our, our old mate Mick LaSalle didn't review this. He must have oh. had a week off. He must have been sunning himself in Saint Tropez or something. <laughs> well earned rest, I would say. <laughs> yeah. So when this film came out, Christmas break, I guess. Um, <laughs> but to another. Uh, uh, critic we usually talk about Roger Ebert gave it four out of four. Oh wow! Really wow. loved it. Yes. Quaron fulfills the promise of futuristic fiction. Characters do not wear strange costumes or visit the moon, and the cities are not plastic hallucinations, but look just like today, except a bit tired and shabby. So yeah, that that was the view across the board. Really, everyone really liked the view of the future uh, and how it was kind of ground in reality instead of this outlandish futuristic bonanza um, forgive me for interrupting Sai, if i could just for a second there but that uh, was roger ebert's review from the time yes it was yeah oh uh, six yeah because the time that we're talking about is is 2017 isn't it 2027 uh, sorry, yeah, sorry yeah, yeah, 2027 yeah yeah so we, we're actually a lot closer to the reality of this film, oh, we or are. You know, the oh, purported yeah, reality, yeah. than Ebert ever was. You know, Ebert was talking about twenty-one years in the future. Yeah. We're seven years away. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's crazy, um, and it, yeah, it's it's believable. Another review I just wanted to pick out was from we we do focus mainly. I mean, I do sort of focus mainly on American ones, but that's the nature of Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic. Yeah, can never say it every week, <laughs> but. Metacritic. <laughs> Another one I wanted to pull out was from the LA Times, who gave it five stars as well. This is from Kenneth Turan, who I don't think we've spoke about before. No, before. he could be a new favourite, though. Yeah, but his picture's outstanding. Oh, what a legend. <laughs> he is said... He handsome? Uh, is he handsome? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll leave that for you guys to judge. <laughs> uh, made with palpable energy, intensity and excitement, it compellingly creates a world gone mad that is uncomfortably close to the one we actually live in. 
It is a Blade Runner for the 21st century, a worthy successor to that epic of dystopian decay. Um, so yeah, high praise indeed. Um, Absolutely. Kenneth Turan. Um But yeah, as I say, the best reviewed we've done, so it, I'm glad it qualified our box office because I was like, oh, <laughs> 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 How I'm do just, we get I'm this just, in I'm just chucking <laughs> any film I want in there. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, no, excellent, excellent. So we have a we have a bona fide qualification here. Shall we dive in on this film here now? Oh, yes, yes, let's. Well, if I could be so bold as to suggest that I'm a minute in, I've watched Clive Owen buy a coffee, yeah, and he's walked outside. It's all gone boom, and I don't know how this has been done. Yeah, it's that impressive. I do not know how they've done what they've done with this opening two minutes of movie. And yeah, and what what we should say as well here is that uh, there's some fantastic just world building going on here. You have the news reports going on in the coffee shop. Um, So it's a world in which uh, no children have been born for 18 years due to uh, infertility, which is never explained in the film as to how it happened, which is great as well, I think. Yeah. It just happened, yeah. 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 We find out that Baby Diego, the youngest man on the planet, who's also, as a result, the most famous man on the planet, has been assassinated. <laughs> um, essentially, hasn't he? Yeah. Uh, we learn about uh, Clive Owen's character, Theo, um, that he is... Just not asked about Baby Diego. He looks a bit world weary, cynical, bit of a drinker. Loves a drop of bells, which is Ooh, a yeah. dreadful whiskey in his <laughs> in his morning coffee. Yeah. And then the coffee shop goes boom, and it's all done in one in seemingly one take. That's astonishing. Mm. It's astonishing. And from there, you're in. Like this is what we're talking about with great yeah. movie openings, aren't we? We're just like, right, this is incredible. This world has been set up via off-screen news reports, some news footage, and we know everything. And that, what I loved about it, when he comes out of the out of the coffee shop, you see, like, rickshaws going past as well. Yeah. Like, it just shows, like, the way that the film presents it is that Britain is one of the few functioning countries with a government, but it's a bit of a police state. Mm. But everyone from all over the world has sort of flooded there as, the, as society has fallen apart in the various corners of the globe. Yeah. And you see the cultural influences as well from the amount of uh, immigrants that have come yeah. to the country. So you have like rickshaws going past like you're in the centre of Hong Kong. But it still looks like London does today as well. It's yeah, still, yeah. It's just, this is one of the great things about this film. And you get it all in this first five minutes, like how good London looks in, even though it's, well, at the time, what, 20 years in the in the future? Yeah. Can I signpost something at this point here, even Absolutely. only two minutes into the film, which is that you guys watching this for the first time in the cinema in 2006 must have seen this potential future as something, oh, my God, that's a shocker. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I thought that's what London looks like. To be <laughs> <laughs> but, but me now watching it for the first time in 2020... I'm like, oh my god, this is so close to yeah. I know. the bone, so close to reality. This is uncomfortable. Yeah, I think why this film—that's why this film has uh, improved exponentially for me mm. over the intervening years—is that I thought it was good at the time. I was like, yeah, but it, the world's never going to get that bad. Yeah, like 2006. I don't know if I was just drunk a lot of the time. I probably was, uh, but we were with you, mate. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't remember things like being on the edge of collapse as they are at the moment and yeah watching this this week it was like 
It feels a bit uncomfortable, this. I'm a bit unnerved, <laughs> yeah. that, that was not the, that far away, like. I, I'd like to, I mean, like, I'd like to put it out there right now that I, uh, I was, um, it, there was so much of what I was watching that made me like, oh, that's a bit close to the yeah. That's a bit close to the bone. Oh, that's on the nose. You know, that kind of stuff. One of the reviews on Letterboxd, one of the one-star reviews, it was simply something like... Um, this is what England looks like a week after Brexit happens. <laughs> and it's like, who? Oh, okay, probably, probably will. <laughs> um, but we should say, just uh, before, I mean, we're spending a lot of time on this opening sequence, but it is so good. But we yeah. should mention that um, this is based on a book by well, P.D. James. Yes. Of the same name. It is called Children and Men, the book as well, isn't it? It is, yeah. It is. Um, and she was actually in that scene in the coffee shop. She oh, was she? In the news bulletin, yeah. She was oh, one of the extras. Well, the... it's really funny because, you know, um, in all, all our separate professional guises, we have uh, people right at the top of the game, don't we? And in mine, P.D. James was the one. Oh, really? Yeah, P.D. James was um, absolutely immense. I mean, my granddad's shelves were full of P.D. James's books. Right. So when I found out this was written by P.D. James... I was astonished. It came out in 1992. She died in 2014. Um, mercifully, she died a you know a very elderly lady. Yeah, but it's just amazing, absolutely amazing. So she's a crime writer. Oh, wonderful! Oh, really? Yeah, 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 it's incredible. Yeah, yeah, she's a crime writer who the industry just looks up to, exp- you know, exponentially. So yeah, it's really interesting. This. Oh, I'll definitely be reading this on the back of this. Yeah, I'm going to as well. I am as well, actually, yeah. Unlike yeah, Alfonso sure. Cuaron, who did not read the book before directing the film, <laughs> because he did, it, basically, it, when you see the end credits of this, there's about four or five different screenwriting credits right, on there. Right, right, right. So he's working from that script and developing it, and he read an abridged version of the book, but he didn't want to be swayed, essentially, is, yeah, is yeah. the gist of what I've got from it, is that that's why he didn't read it. He wanted to make the movie... He wanted the world building to be more visual and not actually explain everything. So, I think it's, I think it's just down to his preference as a filmmaker. Is he wants the story to move really, and he just he wanted the nuts and bolts of the story. But he has a screenwriting credit as well on there. Right. Um, right. I don't know if he's read it since, but he certainly didn't read it before <laughs> he directed it. Did um, just as supplemental information? Did he read the Harry Potter three? Probably not. Again, there was a few uh, going back to Letterboxd, a few grumblings, um, negative wise users who said because it changed a lot from the book. Oh, yeah. does it? Um, right, right. There's a right. lot of stuff different from the book. In particular, the Julianne Moore's character Julian is is different, and even the fact of the the infertility. So in this film, the infertility is down to women not being able to produce eggs whereas in the book it was men who weren't able to produce uh sperm all right there were certainly a few people who were fans of the book who had a problem with that particular change Mm. which i can see you know it's a bit odd why they did decide to change it that way but um yeah maybe it was just because he hadn't have read that detail in the book he just knew it was infertility and that's what he went with yeah can i so can I just get this right? So it was changed from women, men being the problem in the book mm. to women being the problem in the film. Yeah. Do you think the problem, the, the reason they took that line was because 
between 92 when the book was written and 2006 when the film came out that Viagra was a readily available thing. I don't think Viagra produces sperm, Robert. It just gives you a rod on. Oh, is that the thing? <laughs> it just gives you a rock on. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, I just didn't know. So, no, it probably uh, wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just, I, no, genuinely, I just wondered, like, is that why, you know, like um, toilet paper became currency here for a while? <laughs> Like, you know, is T-Pain on his next music video going to be throwing round blue pills? For, you know, uh, like, well, go and get a Dallas, go and make it rain. <laughs> you know, um, never mind. Anyway. Speaking of uh, Quaron wanting to uh, drive the narrative forward, uh, let's drive this podcast forward. Exactly. <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> it's yeah, you know, an hour and a half, um, like, you know, an hour on up to this point. But, uh, yeah. I, I like, like, you know, it'd be easily critical to say, you know, setting up all this world building and narrative thing on news bulletins is quite lazy, but I I quite like it. I think it's good. Oh yeah, to just yeah, yeah, yeah. Set it all out in a as you say, James, in a visual and it takes a, a sentence of something for you to know exactly what's going on. Exactly, yeah. Well, th- th- this is no disrespect to Broken Arrow, but would you rather it was done like this or they rang a conference room <laughs> and someone then explained it? And had the dad from that 70s show explain it all. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. No, I'd rather it was like this. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, exactly. It's so swift as well. Like, I yeah, mean, this moves, this moves, this film. They pack so much into it. Like I was mm. astounded it was under two hours, given how much ground is covered. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. effectively, the whole film is following Clive Owen moving from one place yeah. to another. He never stands still, does he? Really? Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. He's just constantly moving all through London, yeah. which, even though it's a future vision of London, it's really haggard and it feels like it's wartime. Like we've actually gone yeah, back yeah. in time oh, rather yeah, than yeah, forward. Yeah. I felt like saving Private Ryan at times. It is. I mean, it's a full-on police state, isn't it? Like, yeah. where it, all immigrants are demonised completely and yeah. shoved into camps and trains and public transport are routinely uh, attacked by desperate people. And it's just horrible. It's just horrible. And he's a very reactive protagonist in the sense that he just moves from one scenario to another. Something happens and he has to react to it then in that yeah. sense. He's not... He doesn't want to be a hero. He just sort of has circumstances thrust upon him. Oh, yeah, he wants nothing to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he accepts the, the whole thing on the basis of being bought three pints. Exactly. Because <laughs> <laughs> he, he does love the booze. Yeah. All the characters then start to flow in after this intro yes. sequence. So yes. we've got all this world building with Clive Owen. And... Um, Michael Caine rocks up. Oh, yeah, he's great in this. He's so good. At his most hippiest um, yeah. of forms. Yeah. Um, listening to Cooler Shaker in, a, in his car. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I love Michael Caine in this. I think he's really, really good. And he's he's quite laid back, isn't he? He's quite he's, he's the comic relief within the film Yeah. Uh, mm. a lot of the time. And he's just, he sits around smoking weed, telling dad jokes about... Cool, dude. Uh, so... Yeah. He lives in a he lives in a hidden weed farm, doesn't he? He does. Um, Essentially. Yeah. He was a former cartoonist, wasn't he? On in, in politics. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's all that's all told by newspaper clippings pasted to windows, which is a motif yeah. you see quite a lot throughout the film. Yeah. Yeah. And then Armand Theo gets bundled into a van. Yes. He gets hijacked by some by some ne'er do wells. Well, Schmeichel Hummus is back. He is. Um, and his dreads are absolutely horrendous. I could smell them coming off the screen like they look absolutely <laughs> disgusting. You know when you watch a film after so long and you've 
there are people who crop up in it who have since become more famous than they were at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had no idea Charlie Hunnam was in this film. No. Yeah. No yeah. idea whatsoever. And he's doing his own accent, but yeah. it still sounds atrocious. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he actually sounds like. like. That is his Geordie accent, but it sounds really fake. <laughs> Every time he opens his mouth, it sounds silly. But physically, he's a decent presence in the film. He is, yeah. He's a right shit. Because you can isn't see he? him, he looks he looks like a really ragtag predator. Yeah. <laughs> when he's running oh, yeah. around, you know. But the dreadlock I mean, what is it with white people and dreadlocks in this movie? I'm so glad Michael Caine didn't I I, I reckon they suggested oh, Michael Caine yeah. to get dreadlocks and he was like, nah, I'm not having that. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I think I think it would have been better if he had dreadlocks. Like but no, with a bald spot no. in the middle of the dreadlocks, uh, like that they have this go around. <laughs> So many white people with dreadlocks. Um, Julianne Moore is the leader of this, what seems like a rebellion, um, a group of activists who are really against this police state. It's very 1984, isn't it? It is, yeah. There's a lot of like ministry of this and ministry of that. Yeah. You know, it it feels like it's in, it's like the sort of precursor to 1984, even though it also feels extremely haphazard. Like no one knows, there's no real communication between these places or these these groups or anything like that. There's nothing that feels very reliable about it all. No, no, because I think and I think that's down to the police state that they can't they don't have the uh, autonomy to move and it's very sort of haphazard the way these rebellions are put together. And they're classed as terrorists, aren't they, by by the news. Yeah, they yeah. are, yeah. And with some yeah. of them with good reason. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> well yeah, yeah. later find out. Thing what struck me about this film, no one's got mobile phones. There's no oh man no yeah phones so yeah maybe that was a that's a part of that where that was oh I never thought about that mate no one was that's interesting yeah. that's a point do you think that's just because the book was published in 1992 and that's not in the book true that is very <laughs> true well, that yeah, is yeah. very true because in 1992 it was like only businessmen who had to exactly, walk around yeah, with yeah. batteries as a briefcase and that's just a whole <laughs> yeah. that, but it's good yeah. it adds these little societal layers into the world. Like, has communication been outlawed in terms of... Mm. Well, no, it's interesting because, I mean, like, do the military at the end, do they even have radio? I can't even remember. I can't remember any conversations like that. No. It's all very, like, people talking to one another, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Theo is taken by Julian and her cronies, and they need his help, basically, to get some papers for a refugee who needs to be safeguarded somewhere. For some reason, we don't know at this point why. No. But for some reason, this refugee is special and they need some papers to get her to this safe passage and Theo is the person to help them out because now he's a bureaucrat. He was an activist and he's not anymore. He's yeah. Not a bureaucrat. Yeah. So he's the person they get to help them out. Whenever anyone says, get the papers, <laughs> he needs to get papers. All I can think of is that guy, you know, from um, Goodfellas. Get the papers. <laughs> get the papers. Get the papers. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also at this point that we learn that um, Theo uh, and Julian were once married and they had a child and that child uh, died, unfortunately. So, yes, that, which I mean, explains that's... a lot of Theo's apathy towards the world and his lethargy and his cynicism and uh, why he agrees to do this very dangerous thing for three pints and five grand. <laughs> <laughs> Very good point. Uh, <laughs> so he gets the papers, and then they're off in a horrible Fiat people carrier, and we meet the uh, the rest of the fish 
organization, mm. which is this ragtag band of freedom fighters led by uh, Julianne Moore's Julian, which is really confusing that she's called Julianne Moore. Julian, and yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Deeply unhelpful. Um, which is where uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor is one of the lieutenants there. And we meet the uh, the refugee in, que- in question, Key, don't we? Yes, with uh, Pam Ferris mm. and her dreadlocks. Uh, yes. Miriam, her character's called, who is basically, she's sort of her handler. Mm. So they're driving in the car and they get ambushed. Yeah, they get, they? they get ambushed in the car. And this is the first of, I read that there's three long takes in this, but yeah. I counted this as Five. I, this is the second of five. There's, there's a lot of long takes. Yeah. There is. There really is a lot of very, very impressive ones too. This is incredible. This is one of the big ones, isn't it? So this is a. It's really sort of jovial and casual, isn't it? They're in this car. They're just going somewhere, and there's nothing yeah. really going on. And then all of a sudden, they get ambushed by a group. The, the group of sort of yobs you saw earlier in the film who were chucking rocks and stuff at Clive Owen's train when he was coming home from work. Mm. Yeah. Um, the sort of people I'd assume are the type who would defend statues for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's that that sort of that sort and, of person. <laughs> and then possibly urinate against them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. When yeah, the yeah. time, you know, when the time came up. Sponsored by Stellar Artois. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Parker thought it was called Stellar Ortis for a long time. <laughs> Stellar Or twice. <laughs> or, or toys. <laughs> and then, yeah, so uh, they a big ambush happens and they throw the car into the reverse really quickly. And then some shithead on a motorbike comes after them and starts shooting at the, at the windscreen. And the camera is fluid through this car, isn't it? It's just incredible, mm. the cinematography. It's how they've done yeah, this. I, it's I absolutely know. stunning. Uh, it's moving within this confined space, not cutting. Uh, Julianne Moore's uh, character, Julian, who was looked like she was going to be set up to be a major player in this, in this film, is shot in the throat, isn't she? And she dies. Mm. Yes. And they they managed to make their escape, which is all in one continuous shot. And I think at this stage, we need to point out the fact that the film is shot by uh, Emmanuel... Emmanuel Lubezki. Yeah, Emmanuel Lubezki shot this. Uh, and obviously, he's an incredible cinematographer. And he's won Oscars for The Revenant, Birdman and Gravity, also with Quaron, and nominated a further five times. And is he the best director of photography working at the moment? Along with Roger Deakins. Him and Deakins, yeah. Well, if you're nominated five times, I mean, flipping heck, man. He needs to get more love on the Twitter, doesn't he? You know, he's he's won three Oscars nominated five other times. and Oh, so he's won three and nominated five other yeah, times? Yeah, eight in total he's been nominated and he's won three times. Jeez. And every film... Well, it's certainly the Oscar winners. They all look completely different. Absolutely, like they're all it's, yeah, it's a yeah, different yeah. way to shoot stuff, and mm. it it's incredible. And it's it's yeah. like groundbreaking stuff, isn't it? And it's it's when you've got something where you're having to figure out, and this is all credit to Quaron as well. Yeah, to want to do that, and instead of someone turning around going, "Oh, we can't do that," it's like, "No, no, no let's figure out how to do that," and yeah. then they figure out how to do it. It's so difficult. It's incredibly mm. difficult. It's just mind-blowing. I remember this was one of the bits, that, I think from this moment on, as good as the opening sequence was, this was the scene where my jaw was on the floor oh, and it exactly, never yeah. never got back yeah, up from yeah, this yeah. point on. And I was like, 
this is a movie. And then Julia, when Julianne Moore gets shot and you're like, who's arguably the biggest star in the film at oh, the time, yeah. definitely. 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 And she's just taken out within the first half an hour, 40 minutes. Like, Shit, this is a serious, serious biz. Um, but, and it makes you think that like, nobody's safe. No, nobody's safe. No, yeah. Anyone no. can go at any world. moment in this. Yeah, it, dangerous world is right, James. Absolutely yeah. right. So they, after this, they, you know, their their plans have sort of hit a scupper and they have to go to a safe house. And yeah. what's Edgy Force character called? Luke. Is Luke, it? yes, yeah, that's Luke. Right. Yeah. So Luke takes them to a farmhouse where a lot of the rebellion people are, uh, are holed up. And this is where the, the big sort of reveal happens in the film, isn't it? Yes. Oh, Absolutely, it's yeah. a reveal, all right. And it takes place in a cow shed. It does. Is, uh, <laughs> you don't get many of them. <laughs> no. um, and yeah, I really love this scene actually. And I, and I know that I was, uh, you know, at the beginning of the podcast, possibly a little bit like um, you're not in the Clive Owen fan club. Is no, that but I, yeah, I am. I like the guy, but I'm not like, <laughs> you know. Anyway, you wouldn't rush to the cinema to watch a Clive Owen movie. Basically, you just no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Yeah, but yeah. he's excellent here. He's excellent no, in this. I think he's where... really good in this movie, to be honest. I think oh, he's he probably is, the best he is, he's yeah. been in anything. I'd agree. I'd agree totally. Um, but the she's pregnant line he gives, for me, is the line of the film. Mm. And yeah. the way he delivers it is absolutely superb. And people are trying to, you know, the, the absolute shock of seeing a pregnant woman. Yeah. And what that might mean to humanity. Absolutely, yeah. It's gigantic. And he does a very good job of portraying that. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just excellent. And she's brilliant. Um, the uh, Obviously, you know, we haven't even mentioned her name yet, but the uh, the name of uh, Key, uh, Claire Hope um, Ashite, um, I hope I've said that right, she is absolutely superb. Yeah. As, um, she's like the MacGuffin, the, the keeper of the MacGuffin, isn't she? Yes, in way, yeah. yeah. But the, there's just a constant, like, sadness in her, in her eyes, isn't there? And you're just always... Yeah, it is. Like, she's always hoping for more. Yeah. Always she, hoping she, that there's something beyond this for her. Yeah. Now that's sort of out the bag for us and Theo, because we're sort of with him throughout the whole film. I think he's in every scene. We learn things as he learns them. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm. So we are with him for the whole movie and and he's in every scene of the movie isn't he he is yeah like you said before james he's a bystander in the bigger story going on Mm. um and that's what the audience is as well just this bystander just seeing what's happening and and he just happens to get like thrown into it just on the off chance because he knows julianne Moore. that's basically why he's yeah basically yeah yeah it becomes apparent there's a bit of uh deviousness going on so when everyone goes to bed at this farmhouse and old Dreadlock Hunnam returns, which he does a lot in this film. And every time he mm. rocks up, you're like, this little shitbag. Oh, he's coming so up again. <laughs> with his rubbish Geordie accent. Um, he's injured and he's wearing a bike helmet. And you sort of piece together that he was the guy on the bike who shot Julianne Moore. So there's yeah. a bit of naughtiness going on with this this little group. Yeah, because Julianne Moore's uh, plans for Key was to get her out of the country into this could be fictional or um, resistance movement called the Human Project, whereas the other, some of the other members of Fish, led by Luke and uh, Charlie Hunnam's dreadlocked idiot, they want to use the baby as a symbol to, mm. uh, as a political symbol to aid their uprising against the government. 
and that's obviously there was a uh, a philosophical clash there, and basically Luke ordered an assassination on Julianne Moore's character. I'm, mate, I'm so glad you're explaining that to me, because <laughs> I was uh, not because, and this is no slight on the film, but I just um, I'm very thick on the uptake, <laughs> and I was slow here. <laughs> Yeah, and basically what happens is that um, Theo overhears this conversation and they say that they're going to basically kill him in the morning, you know, when they're going to take him back to London Mm. and keep key with them. And it's at that point that he goes, oh, shit, I'm in real danger and I need to get her out of here because this is Mm. not what my ex-wife wanted and I'm loyal to her. Mm. And obviously I don't want to die. And then they escape the farmhouse and the only place that they can go to is to Michael Caine's place where they might be safe. Mm, his weed farm, his hippie weed farm. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was a very tense escape with a car that needs jump-starting while <laughs> moving and all sorts. Yeah. And... But this is another long take, so this is the third one. So this is a long yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. They're trying yeah. to get out and jump-start this yeah, Fiat yeah. Multipler. <laughs> it's a dreadful car. Um, which... <laughs> The windscreen suddenly did come back from it breaking in the car chase, but I'll let that go. I don't care about maybe they fixed it like that. Maybe yeah. it's the future and they fix themselves. I don't know. Yeah. I don't yeah. care. Um, but yeah, that's right. And they, yeah, and they end up at uh, Michael Caine's hidden weed farm, which yeah. which is great because I just, I just Michael Caine is just great in this film, isn't he? But like, he's just such a multi layered character. It's so nice. He's caring for his dying wife. Yeah. At the same time, he's smoking an absolute butt-ton of weed. Yeah. And, um, Strawberry cough, as it's known. Yeah. He, but he, uh, he's an ex-political cartoonist. Yeah. And he just lives in this lovely little place. It's not a little place. It's a lovely house. Yeah, lovely. Um, it's great. It's all great. And he's so watchable in everything. Like, And he made me think, uh, there were moments in this where I thought back to Jaws 4, Jaws the Revenge, which he says he can't remember because, <laughs> well, he never watched it and he, all he remembers really is the pool it built. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, he's he was watchable in that. He's watchable here. He's great. He's, ab- he's an absolute treasure. Michael Kay. Well, he's right in the middle of his Alfred run, isn't he, at this stage? Yes, so he's playing he this lovely yeah, old mentor is, yeah. figure. He's got it down pat at this stage. Yeah. Was he in The Prestige as well? He must have been. Yes. Yeah, he was. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. The reason I forget Michael Caine was in The Prestige is because I always remember David Bowie in The Prestige, where it's Ricky Gervais doing an impression of David Bowie. <laughs> That's <laughs> David Bowie's it's not that, though, is it, though? It is David Bowie, isn't it? No, it, it is David Bowie, but it's David Bowie doing a Gervais impression <laughs> of doing David Bowie. <laughs> Such a good movie for that reason, you know. <laughs> movies that bring you bonus material. That is the ultimate bonus material. Oh, um, yeah, God, it, it. They, they're flirting with suicide as well, aren't they? Kane and his wife. Yeah, yeah. So that so she's like a, a lost cause, isn't she? Really, and they're just. I think Michael Kane has um, what third week in a row had a titful. Hall of Fame, mate. Hall of Fame, and and he's and you know he they're just you know if if death would become him, you know he wouldn't mind he's ready to, he's had his life and he's he's fine yeah and again fucking dreadlock hunnam rocks up doesn't he and yeah, gives him his ruin wish. everybody's oh. fucking fun oh, like, everyone's having a lovely a time in the, the forest 
doing it's, a bit of bonding, yeah, learning out a bit of backstory about everyone. We find out what happened to uh, Theo's son, Dylan, who died during well, a pandemic in 2008. A flu pandemic, wasn't it? Obviously. Yeah. When, when, I mean, when I heard the word pandemic, you, you know, come from Kane's mouth, I was like, whoa, close. Whoa, yeah, yeah. This is way too close to the bone, this. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, they they discuss with Michael Caine that they they need to get to the Human Project, and there's only two possible places that they can meet the boat when it passes, and one is in the middle. They've missed one of them already, so it's not even worth discussing. And the other one is in the middle of a refugee camp in Bexhill, basically. Mm. And Michael Caine has a connection who can get them inside of Bexhill. Mm. That's right. Michael Caine's supposed to help them get in there, but then Charlie Hunnam rocks up and ruins everybody's day. Again. And there's a really tender scene where um, where Michael Caine knows, his character Jasper knows that he's got to be the diversion so that they can escape with Key. And he euthanizes both his dog and his wife mm. as the fish terrorists arrive. And then he just stalls them and makes the ultimate sacrifice. And it's it's horrible. I I I I was too thick to see it like that, and now you've broken my heart massively. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's the little box, isn't it? Yeah, grabs. Yeah. And it's not that I'm massively quick on the uptake. When they go, when they arrive, there's a sort of off-screen line of dialogue where one of them comes back out the house and goes, "There's a dead woman and a dead dog inside." Oh, jeez. Where was I? Where was <laughs> I? <laughs> I think they probably it's probably one of those that they ADR'd in later on because it's like, oh, the audience is going to think that they're going to go in and murder his wife. Like It's like, <laughs> no, you have to make it clear that he's euthanised her beforehand because he's accepted uh, his fate. No. Absolutely. And yeah. uh, Theo sees all this and he's heartbroken. And yeah. um, he's wearing flip-flops at this point, by the way, because Michael Caine apparently has really tiny feet and the shoes. <laughs> <laughs> the shoes yeah. uh, Clive Owen has to put flip-flops on. Um now it's Theo, Key, and Miriam who are having to go to see this um, this copper who's going to help them get into this refugee camp. Yeah, they've got to get. Um, yeah, it's Sid. Is it Sid? Sid? Sid. Yeah, play Peter Mullen. Peter um, Mullen, another fantastic actor. What a stacked yeah. cast this is, by the way. It's he's incredible. a great. <laughs> but he's another one, isn't it? Where like he 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 was probably. I mean, Peter Mullen's been in a lot of stuff over the years yeah, yeah. i think certainly in terms of his caliber and on american side this was before he got quite big because he i'm watching ozark at the minute and he's yeah in he's ozark, in ozark he's brilliant yeah, yeah. in ozark oh chris but you he's he's got one of those voices where you just you know it's him because the character of sid is in his voice comes out he's before so he's good. revealed and you're like i know who this guy is yeah. oh, that's amazing <laughs> he was in um Top of the Lake, you know, the Elizabeth Moss. Um, oh, yeah. Exactly, yeah. He was amazing in that. He's very Absolutely good. Absolutely sensational. He's an incredible actor. He's yeah. really good. He's very good in this too. Yeah, so yeah. He, he takes uh, the three of them, takes them to this refugee camp, which it's been described as a prison, and it effectively is, isn't it? And, it, and yeah. Yeah. I found this bit quite harrowing, really, because it's, yeah, it's, it's, oh, it mirrors it's, a lot of stuff going on at the minute, particularly in America with... What's going on with um, detention uh, camps, their sort yeah. of border stuff and the the little the, the camps they have with the immigrants? Yeah, I mean we don't we, we try not to touch on politics on this podcast, but at the same time there were were a number of occasions where there were too many painful reflections of present day life. Exactly, going yeah. On. Yeah, but um, that is also you know to bring it back to film, 
and to bring it back to stories, that is also the genius of PD James and Alfonso Cuaron. Absolutely, bringing the you know bringing this forward and saying that you know this is what it's going to be like, and we're we're still seven years away from it, boys. Yeah, can't yeah. wait, can't <laughs> wait. <laughs> the thing is, it's, you say it's seven years away, it's, it feels like it's seven days away at the moment. To be honest, mm, yeah, that's true. Oh Jesus Christ! Anyway, um. The Fuji's, the treatment of the Fuji's sucks. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, horrendous. Really, they're, they're treated like cattle and yeah. not even second-class citizens. They haven't even got that privilege. They're, no, they're treated no. like animals, and it's it's really, really horrible. And Miriam's a victim of that. She gets taken off the bus because she's praying for some reason, and she just won't shut up. It's to distract the fact from the fact that uh, Key's waters have broken. She's in labour. Right. Yeah. Uh, and she's trying. She's distracting the corrections officers away from her, and she takes a. She gets smacked in the face, doesn't she? And roughed up and yeah. thrown off the bus. And we don't know what happens to her again after that point. No, we never see her don't. again. No. But it probably isn't well, anything no, good. It's terrible. But yeah, it doesn't look good at all because you see the bodies. And then um, yeah, Clive Owen gets away with it because he points on the floor and does a Ron Weasley and says piss. <laughs> he does. <laughs> In broken English. Which is the first time he's done a different accent in a movie than his normal one. And then uh, Key gets taken up up to a second floor sort of apartment. Yeah. Sorry, apartment is a very grand word for where she ends up. (laughs) Um, And she she has a baby. Oh. Flipping it, this baby scene is off the scale. I get this is another long take one, isn't it? It Um, is. And... We're champions of practical effects on this part. Mm. This is quite clearly a CGI baby, but 14 years later, it is incredible, I think, this CGI baby. I agree entirely. It's a combination, Si. It's both, uh, there's a model of her legs and uh, and uh, where the baby would come out of. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't a biology podcast. That's all we need. <laughs> Mixed with uh, with CGI as well for the for the baby, and it's, yeah. again, it's another incredible long take. And it's just yeah. I tell you what, I thought my missus had a, had a tough labour. Flipping heck! Oh mate, I thought she had an easy one here. <laughs> Three huffs and bam, baby's out. Well, apart from the. <laughs> The threat of being shot in the head is well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> And you're on like a dirty mattress or something. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, the baby comes out and it's all like quite limp, isn't it? And mm. like, oh no, the baby's dead. And Oh no, I know. I hate it. I hate it. I can't. And then it sparks into life. And this is where the CGI is. And it's it's, it's brilliant. It's it really is. Yeah, it is. Um, I think it was Double Negative who did the VFX on this film. And what a job they did on the VFX on this. Because this is... 14 years later and it looks still looks brilliant it looks like a real life what they're holding and it's yeah it's it's fantastic it's really really good yeah it's it's almost hard to accept how good it is because as a human being you're drawn to babies aren't you yeah you know you feel warmth and protection towards them and so much of what i watched in this scene was fabricated on a computer and I still felt that same level yeah. of warmth and compassion and would die for it that a real baby would, you know, and that's Absolutely, such yeah. a testament to him. Yeah. And I, I think he's hit on the massive theme of the film there in the sense that the, because no children have been born, the world has just been robbed of all this innocence, essentially. Yes. Yeah. And this pureness and... And you see this later on. I mean, it's, it gets into uh, religious allegory. Yeah, yeah. It does. Later on, but you know, it's just this is where like the 
the the big themes of hope and innocence lost and and then regained really come yeah. to the fore, don't they? And it's it's just stunning, stunning filmmaking. Yeah, mm, it really is. Yeah. And then we're not even like, Quaron's not even finished there because no, he's from not. here it becomes into another long take, and it's key Theo and the baby having to travel through this yeah. war zone, isn't it? So yeah, because once again it's all kicked off because that shithead Charlie Hunnam and his pals have rocked up and ruined everything for everybody again. Yeah. And Everyone's like, day is ruined. It's like Beirut in the nineteen nineties, isn't it? In the middle of yeah. it, it is. Yeah, it's just it incredible. Like the amount of violence and carnage and explosions and just to orchestrate this amount of chaos and to film it so beautifully. It's just. Yeah. It's a stunning sequence. I, I don't know how you do it. Don't know how you do it. The choreography, the amount of moving parts and the detail, I just don't know how you do it here. Yeah. And there's so much going on as well because there's a really good bit in it um where it sort of points at your own internal prejudice as well, where so there's a Eastern European gypsy woman, isn't there, who sort yeah. of gets involved and she's yes, there's yeah. no subtitles, so you don't know what she's saying or, no. to yeah. anyone. And she she's there and she knows the baby's been born and Sid's seen the baby and he's gone a bit loopy, snooker loopy. Yeah, um, uh, you'll be shocked to hear this that uh, Peter Mullins doesn't play a nice man in this film. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very much against type. <laughs> and there's a little moment where they're trying to escape and you think that the, the this gypsy woman has stolen the baby. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like. Oh fuck! She's taking it off, and she hasn't. She's helping them out, and it's just it Absolutely, just yeah. it crushes you when you're like, "Oh my my!" I didn't realize. I'm so bad for thinking that she has stolen this baby just because she's this immigrant who I don't understand what oh, she's man. saying. I, I, I understand, and, and, and yeah. you're just like, "Oh my god!" And she's not. She's helping them out, and it's it's absolutely fine, and we can trust her. But the these weird internal prejudices is what. Yeah, we have as as a society is put into that one little moment. Absolutely, where you think she's stolen the baby. I think part part of that possibly as well is perhaps not down to, and this is getting anyone who felt the same like that side off the hook. Is that that baby is the most precious thing on the entire planet at that it point? It is, yeah. And then uh, the minute that you can't see it, you're like, oh my god, where's it gone? What you they've know, gone through to get to going this down point the as well. Toilet. Right? Yeah. So. Um, yeah, but I do know exactly what you mean. And they played, they played, you know, those those um, roles were all played perfectly. Absolutely, Absolutely perfectly. And... Um, but it was, you know, um, I don't know. I mean, I I couldn't wait to see Charlie Hummond's, Michael Hummus's demise. Demise. Oh, yeah. God. Couldn't wait. Yeah. So <laughs> I think as well where this sort of subverts. So during the course of the carnage, the um, the uh, the fish group, which is just so silly to say, is uh, they capture Key, don't they? And yes. Um, yes. Yeah. And it's only through um, good luck and an explosion that um, Theo is able to get loose and not be assassinated in the street. And then he has to go and save her, basically, and bring her back mm. and, and save the baby because she's been captured by Chiwetel Ejiofor's uh, Luke. So he has to go into this war zone. He's got no weapons. He's not an action hero at all. He's not even got his shoes on. He's got flip-flops on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, by this point, he's been given oh, some has he got shoes. Yeah, he's had an upgrade. Yeah, he's, he's got, got some, some Adidas AstroTurfs that I had when yeah. I was 15. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they might be suede Hamburgs, but they're not going to be in any sort of fit 
<laughs> condition afterwards. You're not going to be able to get a good custom job on them, especially when they've been in the boat as well. <laughs> and he has to go into this tower block to rescue her, essentially. And there's just mayhem and shrapnel and there's blood on the lens of the camera as well at one yeah. point. And it's just absolute carnage. And he manages to get to her. And um, the fish group have been pinned back in this and the army or the National Guard or whoever the hell they are, are firing cannons up at them from um, from tanks. And it's just absolute carnage, isn't it? And it's from here that you get some phenomenal performance from um, from Chirito Ajua for. He's a hell of an actor, isn't he? Mm. He really, really is. I love it. Um, yeah, I still don't, you know, a day later really know just how they've put this end together. This, yeah. uh, this this whole end. I know it's not essentially the end sequence, but it, it it's the sort of finale, isn't it, really? It is, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So he gets the baby, doesn't he? And you, it's, it's like a beacon now, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Luke says to Theo, he's like, I've, I forgot what a baby looked like and I forgot how beautiful it is and how pure it is. Mm. And then that's what they use to get out of the situation. And yeah. it's just like such an amazing cinematic moment, isn't it? When this yeah. baby gets carried out yeah. and everyone's jaws on the floor. Stunned just like... and everyone stops fighting and yeah. the guns go silent. And yeah, it's. I mean, that's the that's the message of the film, isn't it? Overall. It is, yeah. The, the baby effect here is still amazing. Yeah. I, I just, I can't believe like I was fully expecting that CGI to be dated and it just hasn't. No. I don't no, I really no, don't think. I it think was, it's faultless that CGI. It's hard to hard to watch. Hard to watch because I kept thinking, having never seen this before, I kept thinking my heart was going to be broken and that Key and the baby were going to buy the farm at some point. Mm. And um I'm so glad it didn't happen. Spoiler no. alert. But <laughs> um I kept thinking like, oh my God, this is going to go so wrong and my heart is going to be shredded here. Yeah, yeah, um, and they get on a boat. They get on a little wee rowboat. And the 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 gypsy woman. I need to do her a service. What's her name? What's the character's name? And the <laughs> do a solid the on the, the gypsy woman. The character's called Mariska, played by yeah. uh, Oana Pellier. Yeah, so she helps them get on this boat uh, to escape. And what I found was a was a nice little wrinkle here is that Clive Owen's character Theo is imploring her to get on the boat. Yes. Now we don't know at this stage. There's going to be a reveal as to what's happened mm. to Theo during the course of this carnage. Does he want her to get on the boat to take care of Key because he doesn't think that the human projects are actually going to arrive when they row out to the boat? Very good point, mate. Very yeah, good point. I, I think because there were hints of that earlier on, weren't there, with Miriam? Yeah where they were saying no one's actually contacted them. Yeah. And it was just sort of through what they called mirrors, where it was just basically Chinese whispers. Yeah, exactly. And he's the cynic, isn't he? Like, like yeah, we yeah. would be going, this isn't real. This isn't mm. real at all. So they row out to this, uh, to this, I never know how to pronounce this word. Is it boy or buoy or? I think it's boy. It, yeah, yeah, English, boy, yeah. English is boy and Americans call them buoys. Yeah, I think so they row out to there and they're waiting for the ship uh, that the Human Project uh, is sailing around the coast of England to pick them up, and they're praying that they're actually going to turn up. They've got no confirmation that the ship will actually arrive or not, and it's all foggy, isn't it? 
we see uh, a jet fly over the top through the clouds and Bexhill mm. gets absolutely levelled by these jets. So that's the end of that uprising. Mm. And it's revealed at this point that Theo was shot by Luke as he was escaping with with Key and the baby. Mm. Yeah. And he's he, he's bleeding out, isn't it? And at first she thinks she's the one who's bleeding, but he has to reassure her and says, no, no, I've, I've been shot, essentially. Yeah. And then... Mm. Uh, and then he dies and you see a it big does. boat come and you're like, I really hope this is the Project Freedom people and not just a bunch of fishermen. Yeah. <laughs> I, honestly, I still thought my heart was going to get broken here, especially after um, Owen's kid was called Dylan, wasn't it? Was it Dylan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, And she decides she's going to call her baby Dylan. Yeah. Um, and he dies in that knowledge, yeah, that immediate can... knowledge. I mean, like he hears that and then perishes. It's perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> it is perfect. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm laughing because it's so hard to accept. <laughs> you know, yeah. like you laugh at things that you're not supposed to laugh at. Oh dear. It's yeah, and it's it's just great. Much. Like it's a perfect arc for that character. Like, and it is. It even help teaches her how to win the baby, doesn't he? Before he passes away, which he is, does. Yeah, yeah. It's just, um... it's just great. And uh, you know, I, I get exactly what you were saying earlier on, Rob, about uh, Clive Owen generally. But I just think he's tremendous in this film. I think he's oh, really, yeah, no, really no, good. No, like, I, like no, no, because I'm kind of with no you for quibbles. the most part on on that. But it, I think he's perfectly cast in this as a sort yes, of cynical, yeah. downtrodden apathetic guy but all all the beats that he's got to hit to sell this movie and to sell the predicament to sell the world he nails yeah absolutely nails so yeah no quibbles he's done a great yeah and it's definitely the best performance he's given in a in a big in big mainstream movie yeah for sure for sure for sure and he and they get um well a boat arrives a bigger boat than their boat (laughs) yeah and uh thus endeth the movie yeah to the sounds of children's laughter as the credits start to roll. Which was a bit weird. Um, can I ask for your best bits, gentlemen? Uh, so if we take the two incredible one-shots as sort of red, you know, like mm. incredible filmmaking, unbelievable achievement in cinematography and choreography and just the the ambition and the wherewithal to pull those sequences off. Uh, it's just incredible. Mm. But I, a sequence I really, really enjoyed and that I'd totally forgotten uh, on this rewatch and that actually was really tense, even though I know what's going to happen in the movie. I haven't seen it previously. I found the escape from the farmhouse particularly affecting and mm. racked with tension. I'd never seen a car push start in a pursuit before. And as they're sort <laughs> of rolling down the hill on a on a clapped out engine and like the guys are chasing them from the farmhouse and the sun's coming up behind and there's dogs and all sorts. And then he has to get out and push the car with no shoes on as well and, and escape. It's just, I thought it was a really, really great little set piece that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I can't disagree in any way with any of that. Say si, best bit? Yeah, just like, you know, you can't really look past those long take moments. But a, a good bit I wanted to really sort of shout, it's more of a shot really, was when Miriam, Key and Theo are in, the, they're in a sort of deserted school because obviously you don't need schools anymore because there's no, no one kids. No children. Oh, sheesh, I never thought about that. <laughs> Miriam sort of giving us she was a midwife and she's saying how it sort of panned out where miscarriages started happening and then people weren't coming in and she t- she's regaling this story to Theo and Key's out on a swing set and they're just looking out the window and the shot 
is Miriam and Theo on the right of frame, and Key, you can we can see her through a broken window, and she's yeah. on a swing set. That shot is just brilliant. Yeah. I was like, this is just grade A filmmaking from start to finish, I think. Yeah. It's just a beautiful looking movie for how grim a, yeah. it is. Like the beauty that they find in those surroundings is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Who whoever found that school as well, like it was a post apocalyptic school. Yeah, that is yeah. amazing. I mean the production design across the whole film is just Oh, it's out of this it's world, isn't it? Absolutely yeah. A star, isn't it? It's, you can't yeah, you can't yeah, pop yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't usually get to talk about this kind of stuff, uh, you know, especially yeah, like in in these terms, you know. Um, no, for myself, um, well, you know, I like wardrobe. Oh, yeah. yes. Go on. Uh, I really like the fact that this film was made in 2006. Um, and when they go and end up at Michael Caine's place after they've left the farmhouse with the jump start, you know, the moving yeah. jump start escape. Um, he walks out with a London 2012 fleece on. I love that. I, re- I that bit stuck out for me at the time. Yeah, I it's just, such a good touch, isn't it? It, it really is. It, I, and I just thought, like, we're in the hands of greatness. Yeah, here. yeah. You know, they've even thought of that. You know, that, that touch is the word, isn't it? Yeah. Touch that kind of touch, that level of nuance, is just next level. Because they knew that London were going to get the Olympics and it's like, all right, yeah, so yeah. in 2027, this paraphernalia would exist and you would have it in your wardrobe. Uh, yeah, and he's got a battered 15-year-old hoodie in your wardrobe. Yeah. And you get it like half of the, t- the word London is fallen off and it's yeah, worn out, half isn't it? Knackered, yeah, half yeah, that, it's knackered, yeah. I remember uh, that at brilliant. the time thinking how good that was, that detail. I also know I'd wear it tomorrow. It's even more amazing that the Olympics went ahead in 2012, given there was a pandemic in 2008. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, according to yeah, according to the film's mythology, we've not even touched on the fact that New, uh, that New York got nuked as well in the mythology of this film. Oh, I've not. Oh, I missed that. That was totally in newsreel footage, and he mentions oh, wow. it. He said, uh, "Were your were your parents in New York when when it happened?" Oh, sheesh. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Incredible the amount oh of detail God. in this movie. Because yeah, like because Britain's the only like habitable place, isn't it? Yeah, mm. which is mad. It's like the tiniest island of all the countries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Should we talk about whether we should suggest our audience reconsider this? No, um, <laughs> we should not. <laughs> no, don't. Yes, rubbish. Don't we? Don't reconsider this. Don't <laughs> Sigh, as our rituals suggest, you will go last, James. For your reconsideration. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the fact that this tanked at the box office is the reason we can't have nice things. <laughs> this is enthralling, grounded, socially relevant science fiction, and I think everyone should check it out, especially now. Uh, it packs a lot into its runtime, and while it can be bleak at times, the overriding message is one of hope, and that feeling is something that we could all benefit from at the minute. Also, if you want a visually stunning creation of how society is likely to collapse in the next few years, this is the movie for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's just brilliant. I love it. It's got better with age. It has, hasn't it? Yeah. Cool. For um, this hit me in a lot of ways, a lot of big ways, um, a lot of ways that associate with how I feel about the present in a way that perhaps a lot of people who saw it in 2006 might not have anticipated. Yeah. 
I won't be rushing back to watch this very soon, simply because it was quite hard to watch in the modern context. Yeah. That is totally down to how effective it is as a film um, and how, well, brilliant it is. In terms of filmmaking technique and confidence, it's so above and beyond what you would generally accept. And it's so above and beyond what we on this podcast would generally accept when we talk about films. So, um, yeah, you just have to go, you know, if you've not seen this, rectify it immediately i mean this is uh, this is like it's almost for me in terms of film love and film you know it's a key text you don't have to adore it but you you absolutely cannot argue with its quality and its effectiveness it's a super film watch it immediately yeah amazing uh, so yeah as i pick this movie up of course i'm going to say we reconsider this um and if it is a movie that happened to pass you by on release or over the years since. I really hope, uh, good listeners, you had the sense to watch it before listening to us three spoil the shit out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we didn't do our warning tonight, did no, we? No. Uh, yeah. uh, but yeah, for me, this is one of the best sci-fi movies of modern times, if not all time. Um, and one that deserves to sit alongside genre classics like Blade Runner and 1984. The visual texture of the film is just astounding, and I think that's for me why it puts it above that. Like in terms of all these dystopian, utopian futures, it's all this outlandish nonsense, really. But there's a texture with this which is just just so real. Couple all that with heavy political themes such as immigration and just downright basic humanity, uh, both of which are still very pertinent today. I just can't help be floored by everything this movie laid out for me to get engrossed in. It's Al- Alfonso Cuaron's masterpiece in my eyes, even though he's mm. won Oscars since making this movie. I think it's his best film. For me at the time, it really elevated him as a really great filmmaker and one who whose movies I will always make an effort to see in the cinema. And, and I have since this film, every film he's brought out, I have been there first day watching his films in, in the cinema. Um, I think he's a wonderful filmmaker and uh, this is, for me, his his masterpiece. You won't get a higher accolade than that. Lovely. Brilliant, fellas. Um, enjoyed the discussion. Enjoyed that tonight. Um, I got quite it's, emotional, it's, actually. No, nah, but it's not often... It, but like, we love movies. That's why exactly, we do this yeah. every week. And we don't often get to talk about something that's so... So incredibly well done. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's so actually very good. That, um, yeah. So it's been a pleasure tonight, gents. Yeah. Brilliant. Tune in next time for something very, very special. And uh, we're not going to say anything more, but hold on to your butts, as uh, <laughs> Samuel Jackson was very, very good at saying um yeah please uh, catch up with us on um film twitter at uh fof film pod send us five star reviews on your listening uh contraption of choice and please do tune in next time and uh thank you very much take it easy say goodbye boys see you bye bye goodbye my only quibble is that in 2027 they didn't appear to have three seashells. <laughs> anyway. That's a very good point. What were they wiping their ass with? <laughs> <laughs>
Because you know, given pandemic has happened in 2008, we've really run out of toilet paper by this. <laughs> <laughs> the three seashells crisis of 2000, and whenever it was, 2026. <laughs>